Here we go. Okay. Hey guys, Steve here. Today we're going to talk about Gr- growing with fishes. Growing with fishes. Hey everybody, welcome to Growing with Fishes podcast, episode three hundred and forty-four. Um, today, whoop, sorry about that. I have a. Uh, Something playing in the background. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, we haven't done that in a long time. We used to screw that up every episode. Uh, it's been quite a few since we've done that. Actually, probably since the last time Dale was on the show. It's been a minute. Uh, thanks for joining us again there, Dale. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, we were chatting just before this started that I think the last time I was on was before COVID and I still didn't. I was a Zoom rookie. I was lousy at uh, muting myself and unmuting. And now we've all lived on Zoom for the last few years, so I don't have any excuses. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a good episode for those of you that haven't uh, seen some of the previous episodes that uh, he's joined us for. He's an extremely uh, knowledgeable guy. And uh, if you do want to check out some of the wonderful uh, episodes that we did, we did an ungodly, well, I don't even know if I want to bring it up, but go back and check it out. Um, with uh, a bunch of the episodes we have with him and Beth Schechter and a bunch of other people that are breaking down some of the uh, the previous things and related to some of the uh, the early genetic work in the cannabis space. We'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> um, anyways, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Dale Hunt is a, a very knowledgeable cannabis lawyer, uh, one of the one of the most knowledgeable ones in my opinion. Uh, he's been on the show before and uh, and provided a lot of great answers particularly uh, difficult time in the cannabis industry. And uh, here we are again at another kind of crossroads in the industry with the Schedule 3 stuff and the Safe Banking Act and some of these proposed hemp changes coming down the pipeline in the future. So we thought we'd get him back on the show, kind of answer some of these bigger questions. I know a lot of people are having a lot of anxiety over the Schedule 3 changes and stuff like that. So um, I thought first off, why don't you uh, introduce yourself and give everybody a little bit of a background uh, on what you're doing. And then... uh, um, we can talk about uh, some of the uh, the awesome stuff that we'll, we'll, we'll go over this evening. Sounds great. I appreciate it. So my name is Dale Hunt. Um, I started off as a botanist. I did a bachelor's degree in botany a long time ago, and then I uh, did a master's degree in plant genetics and a PhD in molecular and cellular biology at UC San Diego. Uh, by then, I knew I didn't want to be a professor, so I decided to go to law school. And um, studied all the uh, intellectual property classes they had at Berkeley Law School and um, have been practicing as a patent attorney, uh, gee, for a long time, over 25 years. Uh, I was a partner in some big national law firms. And then in 2019, I decided to start my own firm. Uh, As a patent attorney, I've always worked on a variety of uh, different technologies. I work with medicine and agriculture and uh, Um, sustainable technologies, water purification, alternative energies, things like that. Um, That's kind of why I decided to name my firm uh, Plant and Planet Law Firm. We certainly do a lot of plant work, but we do a lot of other kinds of work as well. Um, I think it was about 2014 that I was uh, approached uh, by um, uh, the Open Cannabis Project and asked to, to advise them on plant intellectual property because uh, that's something that I've I've done my entire career. I've never, it's, 
for the first many years of my career, it was maybe 10 or 15% of my work, but I did always represent plant breeders in getting patents and equivalent rights around the world. And um, not only getting those rights, but also doing deals to license those rights and uh, uh, make money from, um, from their plant genetics. Uh, just to kind of give people an overview on that, one of the people, I, one of the groups that I worked with pointed out that if you're in agriculture and you want to scale, you want to make money uh, with scale, you can either hire people and buy land and scale that way, uh, which is really hard if you're trying to do it internationally, or you can um, have some intellectual property that you can license to other people who already have the land and have the workers and get them to grow your uh, your genetics and then have them send you checks to uh, to pay for the right to grow your genetics. And the companies I've worked with that um, have great genetics and have a demand for their genetics all over the world uh, have seen the ability to scale in ways that are really encouraging. Uh, we believe that that will work in the cannabis industry as the industry goes more international. And we also believe that it, it's going to work um, better and better across the country. Uh, so. Um, we see examples of that in my practice. Uh, I, I say uh, lately about 80% of my work is in cannabis, and uh, we certainly see uh, cannabis breeders getting patents on their on their genetics and doing licensed deals. Um, it's not as active as we'd like it to be for some reasons that we'll be discussing tonight, I'm sure, but it is... Um, it's trending in a direction that I think it, it, we, we can't say what the rate of the trend is, but I think we can talk about the direction of the trend with some confidence. So um, in, my, in my work with Plant and Planet, uh, we not only work with, uh, with plant breeders, but with anybody else who has an invention that they want to protect or is concerned about infringing someone else's uh, intellectual property rights, we, we certainly... Uh, uh, we, we try to provide the whole range of services to, to help people manage the patent landscape. And then I also, um, uh, in late 2019, I founded a company called Breeders Best that is established to work with breeders who have some really special cannabis genetics. They're special enough that they're worth patenting and they want to get patent protection, but they uh, would either would rather not or can't uh, pay for the patents. And so uh, Breeders Best uh, covers the cost of the patenting, which is done through my law firm, and the breeders own the patents, but Breeders Best uh, takes a, a, a license to the patents and helps to commercialize the genetics, with the goal being that as um, royalties are collected from people who um, who are willing to, who want to grow the genetics, um, those royalties uh, go back to the breeder, they're, they're shared between the breeder and Breeders Best, and um, it's a way to take advantage of the scale that I talked about. So, you know, we're, we're waiting for the industry to take off and for this to uh, really take hold, but we um, we've already seen some deals done and we're excited about it. And we um, we're always anxious to find breeders that have something really special that will be in demand in five, 10, 15 years. And that's going to make the world a better place and be a good medicine for people. And, um, uh, we believe as the industry industry matures, we're going to see a lot of opportunities for people to, um, uh, to really start to enjoy a, a good income from their work as plant breeders. So um, I'm a big fan of plant breeders and I'm here to help them. And one, th one other thing I would say is that my practice as an attorney, I am a specialist in patents um, and I'm a plant scientist. I have a lot of friends who are cannabis attorneys in other areas of the law. And um, 
Stephen was nice enough to invite me to be on this podcast to talk about some things that are really outside uh, my area of expertise. But I, you know, I know the people who are experts. I can point you in that direction. I can comment on it somewhere between the the point of view of a of a lay person and a lawyer. I, I am a lawyer, but this is not what I what I do or think about every day. So I welcome the opportunity to talk about it. But I, I want to be clear that I'm not giving legal advice and I'm not even an expert on the things that we're talking about tonight. If we were talking about patents, I, I could hold out a different kind of expertise. But uh, but I really am excited to be back here and uh, looking forward to where this discussion goes. Awesome. I really appreciate you uh, coming back on again. I know uh, you're definitely someone that uh, I always think of when it comes to this kind of stuff and really take appreciate you taking the time to kind of give us more of a, an informed view on some of these things that are giving a lot of people anxiety right now. Um, I guess maybe first off, do you want to start off with the kind of the Schedule 3 um, uh, stuff? So for those of you that don't know, uh, they, they propose, uh, I forget which government body proposed um, changing the to the DEA, the, changing to Schedule 3 for cannabis. Um, that uh, certainly would have some interesting implications to the, the uh, you know everyday part of the market that's kind of thriving and, and really what is the market right now. So. Um, can you talk to us about that and the, uh, kind of what that kind of change would look like and, and how likely it is that that is to happen? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I would, if somebody wants to take a deeper dive on this, I would um, encourage them to uh, to Google um, the INCBA, which is the International Cannabis Bar Association. INCBA Schedule 3, you'll find a YouTube, um, about a two-hour YouTube uh, video that was prepared uh, couple weeks ago with some true experts commenting on this. And um, uh, I, I kind of took a look at that to prepare for tonight, but I, I can definitely explain what the landscape looks like. And, um, and, uh, and then we can take some questions. So um, I think we've all heard of the Controlled Substances Act and we've heard of Schedule 1. Schedule 1 is a classification that the Controlled Substances Act gives to um, drugs that have no known medical use. In fact, let's pull up the uh, the definition of Schedule One. I think I've got it here somewhere. Um, here we go. Well, this is a little bit of an overview of, of Schedule One. Um, I'll share my screen. Uh, here we go. Um, so, are you seeing drug scheduling and penalties? Great. So um, Schedule One is the kind of the least, the, the worst, uh, the worst place you can be uh, um, in the within the Controlled Substances Act. These are drugs that have um, no currently accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. And you can see some of the, you know, the cast of characters here. We got heroin and LSD and uh, stuff like that. And then of course our our favorite um, marijuana is on there too. And um, which is interesting because there are now 37 states that have some kind of active medical cannabis program. And so that's the number I saw most recently. I think that's about right. And so there certainly, there clearly is um, an accepted medical use. So the question though is who, who does it need to be accepted by and who needs to believe that it's accepted? And um, so the one of the federal agencies that and maybe it's the only federal agency, but the, but the federal a federal agency that took an action recently that really does have a big effect on this was the um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services 
um, wrote a letter to the DEA saying that um, uh, cannabis does by now, marijuana does by now have an accepted medical use, and it has a, a lower potential for abuse than these other things, and that it should be reclassified from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. So if we scroll down here to Schedule 3, we can see that these are drugs that, um, with a moderate to low potential for physical and psychological dependence, um, and that they definitely do have a medical use. Um, and so we can see some examples. These are only examples, but Schedule 3 drugs are things that um, certain amount of codeine, um, uh, ketamine, steroids, things like that. So there certainly is the potential to abuse these things, but we're not saying that, that they don't even have a use. Um, Schedule 4 are you know things that are even less problematic. Schedule 5 are even less problematic. And then you can, one of the other options is to just completely deschedule it and say, this isn't even within the within the purview of the of Controlled Substances Act, but the this, the uh, Secretary of HHS sent a letter to the DEA, and as of the uh, uh, the last uh, this this um, INCBA uh, discussion that occurred, nobody had actually seen this letter. At least nobody could nobody could produce a copy of it and say authoritatively exactly what the letter said. But the the um, the word on the street from somebody who had seen it allegedly uh, was that it, it essentially does say um, this should be rescheduled to Schedule Three, and it does have a known medical use. So, where does this where does this leave us? Is it good news or bad news? There's some mixed opinion about that. The the, the one kind of unmitigated good news is that this will have if it does get rescheduled. And DEA has been known to drag their feet on things like this, but um, this clearly <clears throat> came from, this isn't just something that happened because the secretary of HHS got bored one day and decided to stir the pot. This was something that um, came from the Biden administration. The Biden administration is taking some baby steps. They pardoned a bunch of uh, uh, cannabis offenses, although from what I've read, nobody's actually been released from prison based on those pardons. But so to some extent, they're baby steps. So to some extent, they're probably symbolic. But this is definitely a Biden administration intentional thing of taking some baby steps to uh, change the status of cannabis or marijuana from uh, Schedule 1 to Schedule 3, uh, acknowledging that there's a non-medical use, acknowledging that it has a lower potential for abuse than some of these other uh, things on Schedule 1. So the immediate effect of this, if it happens, and nobody can predict the timing of when it will happen. And there's a few, there are a few maneuvers uh, by which DEA could perhaps just ignore this or delay it. But when and if it seems most of the people that I've heard talk about this seem to be believe that it will happen, that Schedule 3 will happen. And um, that as soon as it does, without any other action taken, um, there will be a huge impact on cannabis businesses because of its implications to the tax code. And I'm definitely not a, a tax expert, um, but this part is pretty simple. And we've all heard, if, even if we don't know anything else about the Internal Revenue Code, anybody in the cannabis industry almost has heard of, of 280E, which is a provision in the, uh, in the IRS code. Let me see if I can pull that up. Um, yeah, let's see. My best intentions, here we go, 280E. We got that. There we go. 
280E, this is just a summary of it, but it, it basically um, disallows any tax deductions for the expenses or the cost of goods sold for any company that is trafficking in Schedule One or Schedule Two substances. So as soon as marijuana is no longer Schedule One or Schedule Two, if it makes it to Schedule Three, 280E won't apply anymore. Now that's a really big deal because, um, and let's see if I can go to one other, um, it might take me a minute to pull this one up. Well, essentially if if you can't deduct the cost of goods sold, then um, there's a, then all marijuana companies, all, all plant touching companies are in, uh, maybe not even plant touching, anything that's THC touching, um, uh, cannot deduct its expenses, uh, its cost of goods sold, and it essentially puts it in a totally different tax bracket. And one of the reasons that the um, cannabis industry has been struggling so much in the U.S. is that um, it's like it's like um, having twice as heavy a tax burden on cannabis industries as on any other comparable businesses. Um, if you've got to pay tax on um, on your revenues and you can't deduct your expenses, you might be paying a tax on um, your, your tax rate. I, I saw a table that said that where one company might have a 35% effective tax rate, a cannabis company similarly situated might have a 70% effective tax rate. So you can imagine just this one move would be like a huge tax break although lawyers don't like calling it tax breaks because it just would be tax equity. It's not like a tax break. It's just getting the same tax treatment as every other company in the, that isn't subject to the 280E restriction. So that's one of the things that would happen right away without any further action as soon as Schedule 3 happens. Now, there are some pros and cons about Schedule 3. Uh, one of the thoughts is that, um, you know, descheduling, uh, well, if it's Schedule 3, it's still under the control of the FDA, and it's still um, a controlled substance, meaning it's still not going to be federally legal without a prescription. Doctors could write prescriptions, but um, and then FDA would also have to figure out exactly how to uh, how to regulate it. And FDA, as we all know, is, is an expensive process. It's a slow process. Um, it, it's very burdensome on, I've seen a lot of companies with great um, biotech kinds of medicines uh, go under or fail to fail to um, uh, thrive because of the extreme time delays and expenses of getting anything approved by the FDA. So while Schedule 3 would be a huge immediate benefit for tax purposes, um, it would it would it might just create a whole new layer of burdens on, of regulatory um, restrictions at least at the federal level, um, and it might further complicate how uh, how states can run their own programs. It's it's very hard to predict how that will go. Um, and one one line of thinking, and not everybody agrees with this, but one line of thinking is that uh, putting it under Schedule Three. Because it would it would come still within the purview of the of the FDA and it would be regulated instead of just banned, um, it would really the only parties that could handle working through the whole FDA process with Schedule Three would be Big Pharma, and I don't think too many people are excited about that. So, um, <clears throat> it's good news. It shows progress. Um, one other discussion about descheduling is that that while that is hope that's the goal I think of more people than than rescheduling, descheduling would be way too big a step for um, for this administration. 
And it's definitely too big a, a step for a Congress that is as messed up as our Congress is right now. We're not going to get both both uh, houses of Congress to really agree on almost anything right now, um, except that the other side is all messed up. Uh, so um, it's encouraging, but it's uh, it's definitely a, another another step forward with some some complications and some risks. Yeah, I know a lot of people are worried about. Uh, so I guess maybe my question is, do you think that the state uh, regulated markets are going to be allowed to exist in, after a schedule three change? Or are they going to have to switch to all ISO facilities? Or I guess that's the, the $65 billion question. Yeah, and this this isn't a direct answer, but it, I think it's still relevant. I remember you know, it was about 2016, I went to a meeting that was kind of orienting, maybe it was 2015, but I went to a meeting that was orienting lawyers who were interested in learning more about the, the cannabis um, laws and cannabis industry in California. It was orienting them to the changes in the law that were coming. And um, the first speaker said, yeah, we're going to have a different kind of legal framework in California. We're going to have uh, regulated, um, we're going to have adult use, all these great things. But there people, a lot of people are going to wish for the battle for the good old days, good old bad old days when all they had to worry about was the helicopters, was the Fed, was the DEA. Because now you're going to have a million different um, state agencies regulating this and taxing the shit out of it, excuse my language. And you're going to have, um, it's going to it's going to make things in some ways worse, not better. Um, we've all seen that it's it's kind of a mixed uh, mixed bag at at best. Um, I think we'll see something very similar with depending on how this plays out uh, at the federal level. If it's all just administrative law, it, it's going to be um, it, it's going to be another patchwork of complications. But let's suppose that. Um, as soon as the FDA really does start treating every every joint and every edible as a controlled drug that requires their approval, there might actually be more enforcement, uh, not less. Uh, one of the things I heard people talking about in, in this um, uh, YouTube video that I highly recommend is that changing it to from Schedule One to Schedule Three does not decriminalize its its possession or use if without without jumping through the right regulatory hoops, and so. Um, only descheduling would really would really decriminalize it, and so um, it's really going to be maybe not a function of whether there is uh, a criminal liability as whether anybody's going to spend the money to enforce it. There's another layer here, and again, this isn't me being an, this isn't patent law, so it's not my legal expertise. But I've I've kind of been an observer, um, increasingly, what. Um, uh, disappointed observer of politics, but um, over the years. But uh, if you look at at the actual politics of this, you know Congress is made of representative of representatives of all the different states, and many states now have um, a really big commitment to cannabis. Um, they've got their own tax streams coming. They've got businesses established. Some of these businesses, at least, um, are uh, supporters of certain people in Congress, and so. Yeah, there's going to be things happening at the federal level, but the federal level is also going to, the, the, at least the, the federal element of Congress making decisions about new statutes and new regulations. Um, I think there will be a really interesting uh, mix of different constituencies. You know, if you've, 
I think the whole the whole congressional delegation from Oregon is is if not the whole delegation, most of it has got to be very pro cannabis, um, whether they're Republican or Democrat. I've just I haven't done the research on that, but I think that's the case. Um, similarly, there are Republicans and Democrats from California that are very pro cannabis and want to see it succeed. And so I think people in Congress will definitely be inclined to push back against um, federal agency overreach. And if FDA tries to just dominate the entire country and the entire industry, that might actually, if, if they do it badly enough, it might actually be good news because it could spur Congress to act and say, no, this is not how we wanted it to happen. This is messing up the, the um, already um, de developing industries in many of these states. And so uh, it's really hard to predict how that'll play out, but I think there's going to be some very interesting politics ahead. Um, and uh, just to give a little bit that I that I do know as a lawyer, because I, I did take some administrative law in school and I do some administrative law, the, the way it works is that Congress writes the laws um, and that's a, that, those are the federal statutes. And then there are, there's a whole bunch of administrative of administrative agencies like the U.S. Patent Office, like the DEA, like the FDA, like the USDA, like the EPA that make rules and they don't have the same effect. They don't have the same um, binding power as statutes, but they're basically the rules under which these, these administrators or these, these agencies operate. And they have to jump through certain hoops to get these rules to be enforceable. Um, but they are not at the same level as statute. And so the rulemaking process is going to be a very big part of how this whole thing rolls out. But the rulemaking process of different agencies can always be overridden by uh, changes in the actual law. So if Congress gets worked up enough about this, they can override, um, let's say if the DEA, if the FDA does a major power grab and turns all of this into, just hands it all off to big pharma. I think there could be enough people in Congress that would oppose that, that there might be, um, that that might be an impetus for some actual legislation. Although Congress is so divided and, and so, not just divided between two factions, but so fractioned, um, so split across so many different interests from state to state and industry to industry that it's, it is kind of hard to imagine that they would ever have enough unity to do something sensible and make it, make it really stick. But uh, that's, that's our system. That's the one we live in. Um, uh, not sure if I answered that question, but I did, I did uh, put out a little bit of a ramble there. So <laughs> No, that was good. Uh, I, that was something I was going to actually bring up in regards to that. It's just that a lot of these states are making a lot of money off of cannabis right now. Mm -hmm. They're not going to let that go without a fight with the right. feds it, when, they're, when they have a new piggy bank that it honestly was one of their biggest piggy banks during COVID. It was, you know, the casinos were closed down. The tourism was shut down. A lot of the other tax revenues for these states were completely dissolved during COVID. And, um, and cannabis really was, a, you know, a, a new revenue stream for them. They, you know, kind of got used to at this point. So uh, that really is another thing that kind of is one of the biggest uh, bulwarks to towards, uh, I think, too much change too quickly. Uh, at least I'm hoping, uh, fingers crossed on that one. Yeah. One thing I would say is, it, as I've read court cases um, and seen the actions taken by different administrative agencies, it's really rare for an agency or a court to have an opportunity to increase its power and pass on that opportunity. And so if, if FDA suddenly has the power to, to 
get in and mess up this whole industry even more and um, regulate it more. That's kind of what they're programmed to do. I wouldn't expect them to do less than that or to pass up that opportunity. And I think they will need to get some pushback from other interests. But I, you know, hopefully there'll be enough will. Now, so of course, these administrative agencies are all part of the executive branch and they all answer to the president. So if we have a president that is forcefully in favor of cannabis, the president can just say, no, we're going to do it differently. And the agencies will snap too. They're all headed by, by cabinet members or by, by subordinates of cabinet members. So um, that's another reason that presidential elections are, are so important, but that probably leaves all of us a little bit worried this time around because who knows how that's going to play out. And yeah, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of head shaking going on <laughs> and I'm, and I'm part of it, but uh but yeah, the, the, the interplay of federal agencies and, and federal statutes is very interesting. And then the interplay of pressures coming from each state with its own industries and its own interests is another layer of this. So um, uh, quite a few more issues. There's more issue spotting than there are answers to the issues that are raised. Uh, absolutely. Um, what about the Safe Banking Act? Uh, I know a lot of people have been talking about that in the news as well. That also could uh, kind of ease up a lot of some of the other pain points, at least on the banking side. Um, I know that some of the descheduling will also help relieve some of that, you know, Schedule 1 in particular. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up is so currently um, you can't have an aquaponic cannabis facility and then also apply for meat processing in that facility because you can't have a meat processing facility where they also have schedule one um, plant production because the federal inspectors aren't supposed to be in a schedule one facility unless you go through all the DA, DEA approval stuff. So um, you can't actually get a, a processor on fish uh, from a, a aquaponic cannabis facility. You have to take them to a separate building that is, you know, registered to a different tax ID number and all that stuff. It's, it's quite ridiculous. So um, that would go away uh, as well um, with the Schedule 3 change. We would no longer have to deal with that, which would be very nice. Yeah, it, it will. I know that 280E is the one that jumps out at everybody, but there there might be, there, there must be various other regulations that are also tied to tra trafficking in Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 that will um, change overnight as soon as this gets to Schedule 3, if it does. So that part's good. As far as safe banking, um, this is another area that isn't my expertise, but I've, I've heard a little bit about it and I know what's going on. Um, the, the latest news is that it successfully made it out of committee in the Senate. Um, finally, there was a majority vote in the in the banking committee of the Senate uh, approving this for, um, I guess, for floor debate in the Senate. And of course, that's encouraging. It's, a, it's another baby step, but that is still worlds away from being law because of course it would still have to be approved by the Senate. And then it would also have to be approved by the House and the bills would have to be compatible and be signed by the president. So um, it's it's a nice sign of progress, but it, it's not anything any, that, that anybody can take to the bank, so to speak. Um, what the Safe Banking Act does, as I understand it, is that it essentially it tells banks, so if banks that are federally regulated have faced some really big risks if they... Uh, if they take money from plant touching cannabis companies, uh, they can um, lose, I think they can lose their federal charter. They can have their assets seized. Um, there's there's a, lot, a, a lot of downside to dealing with cannabis companies, which is why federal banks, if they know 
if they know what you're doing and where your money's coming from, they will tell you to, to, to leave right now. Um, even though I just run a law firm that doesn't touch the plants, um, I had I had my own challenges just being able to set up the bank accounts for my law firm. Um, and so many companies that want some kind of banking, obviously you can just work with cash, which is tremendously burdensome and complicated and risky. Um, and uh, or you can you can work with a state bank, a state chartered bank that isn't under the same rules as federal banks, but um, many of them have their own rules and their own restrictions, and they also charge crazy high fees. So if if I've heard people say that you know if, short of all out legalization, um, getting rid of 280e burdens would be a huge break, and just manageable normal banking would be a huge break. I think that if people had to choose between one or the other, they'd probably rather get rid of 280e, the, the 280e problem. Um, but I, you know, and that does seem to be happening first, but uh, but safe banking, hopefully, you know, the winds can change. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, it, it's definitely a good sign that it made it out of committee, uh, but it's far from being a law. Awesome. Uh, we had a couple of questions. We had one from Chad. He says, uh, well, we'll say a certain company is trademarked um, uh, the name Afghan One and a few other common strain names that have long been in its library. Is that enforceable in U.S. markets? Does it hold any weight? I can talk about that in principle. I don't know the facts of that specific case. So I'm not going to be talking about that specific case. Sure. But I can talk about what um, what the trademark landscape is like. Um, and I can also, if anybody really wants uh, to talk to some trademark heavyweights, I've got some friends that are really, really immersed in the in trademarking in the cannabis space. And uh, I always send people to them rather than than uh, doing that work myself, but uh, but I can talk about it. So if you have a strain name that is associated with one source, um, uh, now, as we know, some strain names are all over the place, and they might um, they they might be twenty different people that use that name or some variation of it, and it might not even always be the same genetics. It might just be associated with some general effect or whatever. When when a strain name is not um, uniquely associated with a, with a particular source, it probably doesn't have any or very much of any kind of meaningful trademark uh, value. And right now we're talking about something called common law trademark rights, which means the rights you get just from using um, using your mark in association with goods or services and having the public begin to recognize the association between that mark and that product and that source of those goods or services. So, um, but let's, supp let's suppose, and it, this isn't even about Afghani one because I don't know those facts, but let's suppose there is a strain name that is pretty consistently associated with one source and maybe one actual genetic selection. Um, then just the use and the recognition of that name in various markets uh, would establish some common law rights. And those don't require federal registration. They, they're not as strong as federal rights, but they're the genuine rights. And I've seen people get cease and desist letters over common law rights. You can strengthen common law rights to um, things like cannabis strains by filing uh, for state trademark protection in states that will grant that for, for um, cannabis uh, genetics. And so 
there are several states that will give you uh, state trademark protection for cannabis genetics. And so if you've got a strain and you want to get some protection, uh, you can first, certainly you want to make sure that your your common law situation is clean, that you are you are the only source of those goods. And if other people start to use it without your permission, that you, you kind of uh, let them know that they need to stop and that you've got common law rights. You can strengthen it with state registrations. You can't currently... Uh, register a federal trademark for anything that is federally illegal, because part of part of a federal trademark registration requires actual legal use between the states. Um, but uh, these other ways of getting some trademark rights in place uh, are very viable and they're being used a lot. Uh, so I hope that answers the question. Um, but oh, I guess the other part of it is, is that enforceable in U.S. markets? In, in any market where... Um, where those common law rights exist, there would be enforceability. There would be stronger enforceability if in that market, you've also got a state registration. The strongest enforceability, of course, comes from federal registration because even if you haven't entered every market in the US, uh, the, federal, the federal registration would have US scope, but that's not available. That's certainly available for hemp right now and for anything that isn't illegal, but it's not available yet for um, anything that is illegal under the CSA or otherwise illegal. But um, yeah, people are, are um, implementing good strategies for trademark protection all the time. And um, there, there are really good lawyers out there who know how to do that. We had another question. How do you patent plant? Now, this is, this is what I do all the time. So I'm, I'm happy to take this question. Um, if you have a cannabis plant that is that you've developed or that you discovered in a cultivated state, it would it, it is eligible for patent protection. Um, why a cultivated state? It, um, patent law doesn't allow you to protect a product of nature. And so if you're just out on a hike and you find some wild cannabis plant, even if you're the one that found it, there's no as the, the case law uses the, the, the term or the, the phrase, the hand of man or the in, human intervention, there's no human intervention that led to that particular selection. And so it's a product of nature and isn't eligible for patent. But if you do the breeding and selection yourself, or even if you just find it on your farm and it's considered a cultivated condition, a cultivated state, there's enough human effect and human interaction for it to be eligible for patent. Then how do you actually patent it? Um, well, it, it is, uh, the, let me actually set up the little bit more about the kinds of protection. There are three kinds of protection available for, for plants and under the US system. One is the USDA plant variety protection system. Um, it is currently only available for federally legal uh, plants. And so you can protect hemp, but you can't protect a, a high THC marijuana strain um, through the USDA PVP system. The U.S. Patent Office is agnostic about legality when it comes to when it's actually the patent side. They're, they're, they're not agnostic about legality on the trademark side. But if you want to protect, uh, get a patent on a, on a cannabis plant through the USPTO, there's no inquiry about whether it's legal or not. They just don't. That's not that's not part of what they're supposed to examine. They just examine the uh, the proposed invention for whether it's really new and whether it's not obvious and whether it's adequately disclosed. And the way you adequately disclose uh, something for a plant patent is you just describe it in a lot of botanical detail. Now, a lot of people think that you have to have a DNA sequence to get a patent on a plant and you don't. It, it certainly doesn't hurt, but in um, 25 plus years of patenting plants, 
I've actually never submitted a DNA sequence. Um, and it's never, we've, every patent we've ever applied for, for a plant variety has been allowed unless the client just decided to abandon it for economic reasons or because it wasn't interesting anymore. So we've never been required to submit a DNA sequence. Um, anticipating some other questions that come up though, DNA sequences are very valuable to prove infringement. So if you think someone stole your plants and you wanna show that, they, that they're the same thing, that's when a DNA test is, is great, is very valuable and is really going to be essential. Um, DNA testing has gotten cheap enough that people like to do it anyway, and we certainly don't discourage it. It's just, we just try to be clear that it's not a requirement for a patent. Um, so within the patent office, we talked about the, DS, the USDA PVP system, but within the patent office, there are two ways of protecting a plant. One is what is called a plant patent. That, was that system was created just to protect um, asexually propagated plants. It was really done in the time when, when um, Luther Burbank was developing all kinds of new plant varieties, trees and vines and things like that. And they just, they, they were clearly economically important inventions, but they just really didn't fit in the normal patent system. So the Congress created the plant patent system just for this. Um, what is complicated about this though for cannabis is as we all know, you can make, you can, ved, you can propagate cannabis either sexually or asexually. And um, a plant patent is very, uh, cannabis is very much eligible for plant patenting, but plant patents only protect, um, they're only infringed by asexual propagation. And so that means if you, if you have a plant patent on your cannabis strain and somebody's making clones, that's an infringement. But if they're making seeds from that strain, or if they are breeding with that strain, that's not an infringement of a plant patent. And so if you know, depending on what you value about your strain, you may want more than a plant patent because you may want it to be infringed by people who are breeding without your permission or who are making seeds without your permission. And um, excuse me, I'm gonna mute myself and cough here for. You're glad you didn't hear that. Had to watch it, sorry. Um, if you want to protect a cannabis plant more broadly than with a plant patent, there is a way to do that. It's called a, a utility patent. And there's a certain way of doing a utility patent that covers just one strain or one selection of cannabis. It, um, typically what you do is you develop a stable seed line and good breeders know that that involves some, some inbreeding, some back crosses or some self crosses to um, usually a few generations of that with some selection to really stabilize the desired traits in seed form. And it's not as uniform as clones, of course, but it can be uniform enough to be defined as a variety or a strain for patenting purposes. And if you've got something that you can make a stable seed line from, then it's eligible for uh, a utility patent. And the great thing about a variety specific utility patent is that it can, it, it, you can claim it so that seeds would infringe. So if somebody makes seeds without your permission, that would be an infringement of your patent. If somebody is breeding without your permission, that would be an infringement of the patent. Even progeny down to a certain number of generations could be covered by, by a patent. Um, that kind of is a, a little bit of a negotiation with the examiner, but we've, we've been successful at that to some extent. And so if you want the broadest kind of protection for a plant, um, for a cannabis plant, you really need a variety specific utility patent unless you have one that is just so unstable that it's only valuable in clone form, and then a plant patent would be plenty. P 
people often ask also about the price difference. So typically a utility patent like this is going to cost about twice as much as a plant patent. Ballpark, that's a very approximate ballpark, but that's usually about, it's just a more complicated disclosure and a more complicated negotiation for allowance. Um, and you have to make a fairly expensive seed deposit. Um, and it typically, uh, I'd say utility patent on a cannabis plant is going to take um, two to three years to, to get through the whole process. And most plant patents are wrapped up within about a year and a half. So it's approximately twice as expensive, approximately twice as long to get it. Um, it's not something you do just because you're proud of, of what you've, of, of your strain. It's got to have some real economic value. But if it's one of these monster strains that, that people are going to want to be using for um, the next decade, then the cost of the patent is going to be a trivial amount of the value that you get from really protecting it and making it so that nobody can use it without your permission. Now, is it true that you have to make it all the way to an F7 really to start qualifying for some of these? Or, so I've heard that before as well. That's a rule. Curious. Yeah, that's a rule of thumb. Um, it depends. I think it depends on how heterozygous or how variable the parents are in the first place. If you've got, if you're already starting with something that's got high homozygosity, that just means you know that that the uh, the the gene variation is less. Um, then getting to the point where you've got enough uniformity that you don't have that your seeds are fairly uh, that that, that a, a, a seed lot that you would plant would be fairly uniform in the plants that it produces and in the flower or other traits that it produces. Uh, you may be able to do that in less than seven generations of, um, of interbreeding, of inbreeding. But uh, typically, I think the rule of thumb is people say seven generations, nine generations. I've got one breeder I worked with that was really working to, to isolate some traits. And I think he did 23 generations of inbreeding. Um, and he's really proud of that. And he should be. It's a lot of work. Uh, but um, but, you know, like I said, if you start with high homozygosity um, and maybe you get a little bit lucky and you do some really good selection early in the process, you may be able to get stability faster than that. And stability is kind of subjective. It, it's, um, uh, you know, it, which traits are you looking for? Which traits are need to be need to be uniform and which ones can be more variable? That's that's it's quite subjective. But uh if you tell the patent office that you have a stable seed line and that's what you're depositing, they will generally take your word for it. The thing is that if, you, if you're just not honest about that, then um, if somebody ever wants to challenge your patent on that basis, they could, they could access your seed deposit and show that it's not uniform and it's not stable. And, and that would call into question the validity of your patent. So um, we certainly don't recommend that. Yeah, I think it's, it's Long answer to a short question. Yeah, seven generations is typical, is the the, the, the rule of thumb. Well, thanks. Yeah, I know it's definitely uh, an interesting topic that a lot of people have uh, different opinions on for sure, but it's definitely one that, uh, um, you know, has a lot of value, especially for things like some of the more, you know, super medicinal stuff or some of the other things. And um, what are your thoughts as well on kind of things like, um, Copyleft cultivars and some of the other people that are kind of in uh, the um, uh, kind of open source kind of uh, patent space or, or registration space, and and what is you know what is the future of that in your opinion as someone uh, uh, you know cause as that can also allow for people to um, uh, uh, have those kinds of things and, and uh, protect them in some other ways. Do you think there's a future for that in the in the long term with the the current um, 
way things are headed or you think that's something that'll kind of end up getting kind of pushed out once uh, uh, things kind of get more regulated? Well, anytime I get, anytime I talk about open source, I start to get um, some, the, the, the closest thing I would ever get to hate mail. It's not like I'm New York Jets quarterback or anything, but I, I get a certain amount of hate mail when I talk about open source. And that's just because I, I'm telling people what I know that isn't what they want to hear. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and dive into the deep end and we'll see what happens. So open source started in the software industry. It was based, and I, I'm not an open source expert in software, but I've learned enough about it just so that I can talk about it because this, this question does come up a lot. And open source was essentially an agreement among people who wrote software that said, if you, if you join our little open source system and you abide by our rules, then you're allowed to use this, this source code as you adapt your, as you make your own software. But then you have to also participate in the open source system. And what would you do with violators? Well, with violators, you sue them for copyright infringement or for breach of contract or for both. Because um, if they agreed to, to participate in the open source system and then they, they broke the rules, they breached the contract. Easy enough. Let's say they didn't ever agree and they just got a hold of some open source software somewhere and then they started doing something that was in violation. If they never signed the contract, they never agreed to participate in it that way. You can't really get them. You can't sue someone for breaching a contract they never agreed to. But because software is automatically protected by copyright, as soon as it's created, you don't have to register anything. Since it's automatically protected by copyright, you can sue them for copyright infringement. So open source in, in, in uh, software has some teeth. It has contract teeth and it has copyright teeth. Now, the thing that people don't want to hear about plant genetics is that open source doesn't work with plant genetics. When you say open source, it feels good and it sounds good. It sounds philosophically desirable. I'm certainly not, not opposed to it philosophically, but how do you enforce open source? Really what you mean when you say open source in plant genetics is you'd mean public domain. And if you mean public domain, that's great. Say public domain and we'll call it good. Or you're gonna say it's a very limited closed system. It's a closed loop that um, is going to be strict with its members and has no recourse against its non-members. So I'll go into what that means. So if you, if you don't have automatic protection for plant genetics, which you don't, there is no such thing. I've advocated that there should be, but if there's no equivalent automatic protection for plant genetics like there is for copyright in, in, uh, in computer code, then let's say we, we develop a, a, a new cannabis strain and we put it into an open source system. We call it open source because it feels good. And we want to believe it, it's analogous to, uh, copy, to uh, computer software. And we put it into the system and we say, all right, we're going to share with members who have agreed to, this open, to the open source rules. Then you can breed with my stuff. I can breed with your stuff. Nobody's going to claim, nobody's going to patent. We're all going to agree we're not patenting it. And we're going to agree that it's, it's okay for other people to breed with, with our genetics, as long as they agree, as long as they're in this club. And if they're in the club, great, because then they've agreed, they, they will have, um, in one way or another, effectively agreed in some kind of a contract form to abide by those rules. Anybody who's in that club and doesn't abide by the rules, your recourse against them is breach of contract. So that's great. Within that little club, within that system, that ecosystem of people who've agreed to play by those rules, you could call it open source. You could call it sharing. You could call it whatever you want. 
the problem that this breaks down tremendously when it leaks outside that group. Let's say that, that somebody who never agreed to those rules gets a hold of some seeds, some bag seed, or they just buy it innocently from somebody who was illegal, illegally selling it or something. If they never agreed to those rules, you can't sue them for breach of contract. And since you don't have automatic copyright protection on the plant genetics, you don't have any other recourse. See, if, if, you, if you don't have any kind of protection of intellectual property protection on plant genetics, which there isn't unless you apply for it, and it's, it's an unfortunate fact, but it's, it's the fact, then um, you only recourse is to people that are inside the club and you have zero recourse against people who've never agreed to those rules. And that's why it really, whether you intend for it to, to be really public domain or not, that's what it becomes. So um, I know that there are some, there's a system in Germany, I think, that has been pointed out to me that may be more aggressive than that. It may be that there's some equivalent or some analog to automatic protection. I haven't researched that. What I've researched is, um, is the situation in the US and that hasn't changed. And so, um, yeah, it's something people don't want to hear, but um, it's true. No, I mean, that, that makes complete logical sense. Um, so, so what about the public domain uh, registration? So can you touch on that? Is, is that a, a, maybe a, a more functional alternative? or, or uh... Yeah, I think public domain is really maybe the, ec the ethic or the, the ethos that people in the industry want. It's kind of the tradition, if you think of it, that back in the in the good old days you know you'd, you'd share um seeds or or something with your neighbor um you'd pass things around you you know you'd take care of each other you take turns watching out for the helicopters or whatever and there was kind of a, 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 a an ethic that you would share and um to the extent that people want to embrace that i would not try to talk anybody out of that i think that most things even if they are great um great work by breeders there are so many strains out there that you can't patent them all. And most of them are going to be popular for a while. They'll be like the flavor of the month or something, but they, they won't have the staying power to make it worth the cost of patenting. And those are the kinds of things that should be shared and that aren't worth registering. And that really is public domain. You basically put it out there and say, uh, it, it's, maybe it's kind of like, um, you know, if I, if I have some kind of a, a service, I, I, let's say I, I've got a, um, I've got a podcast that people want to listen to, but I'm not charging them a subscription. And I just say, hey, if you like this podcast, here's here's a way that you can donate a little bit money, a little bit of money to keep us going or to show your support. And that's that's kind of a, a an honor system approach um, without any real contracts or rules or fees or anything like that. And to the extent that people can do that, I think it's great. And that's probably the right way to handle a lot of cannabis genetics. There are some cannabis genetics that are going to be so special or so much in demand or so likely to get stolen that you really have to have stronger protection than that. But I, I think public domain is great. And um, that's really where most cannabis genetics belong is in the public domain. All right. Yeah, thanks. Because I know there's definitely some some questions I hear about a lot. And, uh, you know, you kind of see a lot of people trying to to find a solution to that and uh, it's interesting to kind of see what uh, what does and doesn't work and it's interesting that you bring it up too about the software being automatically uh, protected whereas uh, you know plants obviously are not so um, that's, that's definitely a big hurdle that uh, so 
would that something they would have to change through something like the farm bill or is it something they'd have to actually change through agricultural um international kind of stuff or um i would like to see it changed internationally i would like for there to be a plant breeder protection that's this form of copyright you know if you create you can create um, anything it, under copyright law, anything with a modicum of originality um, that, is that is fixed in a tangible medium is automatically copyright protected. And that was an international convention that was established, um, I think, a hundred years before the United States finally signed on to it. But they finally did. We finally signed on to it. And it's almost worldwide that there's automatic copyright protection as soon as something like that is created. But it certainly doesn't apply to plant genetics, and I wish it did. I think it would be great if plant breeders could protect um, what they create immediately upon creation. Um, I talked to a group of um, a, a seed industry about that, and there was some, you know, there was some uh, some skepticism about it. And I, but I pointed out, look, if you texted somebody today, and your text had any originality at all that has automatic copyright protection you're not going to do anything about it but it's automatically copyright protected so the fact that there's a lot of this flying around doesn't mean that the system isn't working because if if something becomes it's not a it's not a matter of whether it's protected it's it's what hat what do you do when someone is infringing it if someone takes something that that belongs to you and starts to make money off it you can tell them either they have to stop or they have to write you a check and you should be able to do the same thing, I think, with your plant breeding. But right now, that's not the way the system works. Um, and when people hear me say that, they think I'm just trying to gin up some business, you know, that to, to have people improperly or unnecessarily file patents with me. And I, I always tell people it's, it's not whether your, your um, variety is patentable. It's whether you should patent it. It's whether it's worth patenting. And I, I uh, don't want people to, to try to patent things that aren't going to be worth it because it ends up being a very frustrating expensive process but you know if you've got something that's going to be worth five thousand dollars or a good feeling you're not going to want to spend more than that patenting it if you've got something that might be worth hundreds of millions of dollars then then the cost of patenting is trivial um, but point is yeah we we do need automatic protection for plant breeders it would be best if it could be an inter international convention um, but it certainly is something that if Congress ever had the strong enough will to do that, they could create that in some equivalent to the Copyright Act. Um, I don't see it happening because it's um, uh, the, the kind of forces that would spur Congress to, to move on something like that just don't exist. But, um, you know, if, if we could just make a wish and have it come true, that, that would be one of my wishes, I suppose. wouldn't be my number one wish but it would be up there <laughs> <laughs> sure um i uh, so did you want to touch on the um or i would love to, to ask you about this i know we, you didn't have a chance to really uh, go through it quite as much but some of the new proposed um changes in the farm bill uh they want to basically um uh really tighten the uh get basically get rid of thca um you know, loophole, uh, get rid of all the derivatives like Delta 8, Delta 10, um, THCO and all that in the next farm bill, at least it's one of the, so it's, to be clear, it's not in the farm bill. It was proposed by one of the main lobby groups to Congress to put in the farm bill. So um, they haven't actually come out with the language in the farm bill yet, 
but it's something that is extremely concerning that's in the pipeline right now that would very much screw up, you know, basically anyone east of the Mississippi. Uh, that that's uh, in, in a little uh, a little bit of a different kind of legal operating state um, uh, compared to the West. Yeah, so the the farm bill, the way it's written, defines hemp as anything that has less than zero point three percent delta nine THC, and um, and there's a formula for for I guess for calculating um, how much of different how much of a certain sample of THC would be Delta nine or whatever. And so um, my, my understanding is that this is an attempt to see that was that defined it so narrowly that, okay, well, Delta eight doesn't count. And what about THCA? And what about if you can, if you can make Delta eight or something else, some, some THC form or some psychoactive form from, uh, from CBD that was grown from pure hemp. And, um, because you know the people in Congress that wrote this law were not thinking about those things, or maybe maybe nobody thought about it until people are trying to figure out how to get around the the restriction of the of the farm bill. Um, there certainly are some some kind of closet industries that have popped up, or maybe more than closet industries, to say to make Delta Eight from CBD or to um, make other forms that uh, of of um, cannabinoids that aren't Delta Delta Nine THC. So it it kind of you can see where this is going and where they are trying to close the loophole and make uh, make it harder for well to to have more things that are not allowed. I think that probably their intent is to uh, interfere at the very least with with any psychoactive cannabinoids. Um, but uh, you know, there's it's one thing to talk about language that people might um, put in, and another thing to have it pass. And there might be. Um, uh, you know, there, there certainly are a lot of voices that, that could have an influence on this. Now, you know that, or many of you know that I work with pretty closely with Ethan Russo, and um, Ethan has, has long advocated for, you know, free use of plant medicines, but he gets really worked up when you talk about Delta-8. And the reason why is that Delta-8 being a chemical derivative, it, it might be predominantly a form of Delta-8 that is just fine, but it also has these other isomers, these other chemical forms that come from the, the chemical reaction that don't get purified out that, you know, nobody knows exactly what they do. So just as a physician, he's worried about that, and he'd like to see um, stricter control over, over the safety of things like that. But I'm not. I doesn't mean he's advocating for this particular language. I'm not. I can't speak for Ethan. I just know that when I heard about Delta Eight for the first time, I was kind of surprised that he was so um, concerned about it. And and then it was when I later learned that it's it's essentially the impurities in Delta Eight that can really mess people up. That he's you know he's a he he's somebody who really believes in natural plant medicines and not. Um, not the kind of manufactured things that he's, he's more concerned about those. So um, I, I can see, I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is that even people who want to see more access to the plant and more access to these beneficial cannabinoids, even some of them are concerned about the chemical derivatives and the way that people are, are finding ways of meeting demand while still complying in some technical sense with the farm bill. And I think that's part of the goal of, of, uh, closing some of these loopholes. And I haven't studied it enough to have 
even have an opinion on it other than I think that usually when Congress gets involved in something, they're more likely to mess it up or misunderstand it than to just get it exactly right. That's interesting. I've never heard about the, the isomer issue with, with Delta-8. I know that I, I basically can't sleep on it. Like I can smoke to, you know, Delta-9 or, or whatever else or THCA or anything else and then it, it's fine. Delta-8, if I take like a big uh, a Delta eight edible or something, and then try to sleep. Forget it. Like, it just doesn't happen. Uh, I didn't realize that there's other other. You know, I never thought about that with the isomers. It's definitely interesting. Is that similar to with THCO and some of the other ones? I would imagine. Um, some of, if it, I think if it's naturally occurring, you know, there can be isomers even of naturally occurring um, chemicals, but it, they're probably fewer and less less bizarre. And when you do start to make chemical modifications, just um, you know, post uh, post plant, depending on the chemical reaction that you induce and how much purification you do after, you can end up with with a whole array of things that you don't even know are there. That they might be in small enough quantities that you can't detect them, but they might be potent enough that that they would have an effect. And as, there are good examples of this. There are some things that are, you know. Um, 10 times more potent or even 100 times more potent at the receptor level than other things are. And so let's say that um, that they're, they might be way below the level of detection, but way but still potent enough that they would have a big effect. And I think that's the concern. So, I, and I'm not even saying that all Delta-8 is, um, I don't think it's all created equal because some people are, are probably more careful with their chemical reactions and way more careful with their purifications. But the the really kind of um, low tech modification of CBD to get delta eight does have some some real potential uh, side products that aren't desirable. And for those of you who don't know what an isomer is, it's when you have a molecule, you have the same number of of atoms, but they're in a slightly different arrangement. Um, you can also have like a left or right handed version of the same thing. So imagine if you have your hand, your thumb is here. And an isomer, it would be like this. You know, that's another way to kind of think of it. And and those tiny changes can be can take something from like a you know a fun drug to a very deadly drug, or something that has a radically different potency, or something that has a radically different dosage, or any number of different things depending on its interaction with whatever receptor or other molecules that are you know it's interacting with. So um, that's the reason why uh, it, it can be concerning. For those of you that maybe don't have that background, um, I yeah, did thanks, find it thanks for thanks for clarifying that the the receptors that interact with cannabinoids, it's kind of a lock and key thing, and the shape of the cannabinoid um, affects the shape and the activity of the receptor when they bind to each other, and so you can have things that have a, a very similar name and even have all the same atoms in it and most of the same structure, but it's like the example you gave with your with right-handed or left-handed. Um, where the thumb is, as to use that example, can really affect what the receptor does. And so, um, uh, and if you don't know, if, you, if you've got a bunch of forms that you've never even been able to study to know what they do, then you're taking some chances. Yeah, no, it's definitely something that um, I, when people get into uh, other types of synthesis, uh, it can be an issue if you don't know how to look out for that or prevent it uh, during synthesis. So definitely an, an interesting point uh, to bring up. Um, yeah, I, I wanna... remember if, if 
few years ago, I was at a meeting and they were talking about THCP, which at the time was pretty new. And that was a manufactured form of THC. And I think it was pretty pure. It was consistent. It was all one structure. And they were saying it's, I don't remember the number, maybe 20 times, maybe 50 times more potent than THC. And the question is, okay, why would you want that? Um, is it, does that mean it's going to hit the receptor 50 times harder? Is it going to stay on 50 times longer? Maybe there's some good there, but just because it's more potent doesn't mean it's better. It might, it might interact with the receptor in some really undesirable ways. You don't, you don't necessarily want to be high for 50 nights in a row. <laughs> and I'm not saying it would be, but, but um, uh, greater potency isn't always a good thing. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing. I know it definitely was weird to find out. And then also, too, the fact that we used to think there was just a CB1 and CB2 receptor. Now I know there's a CB3, CB4, CB5, and they they think probably even more than that. So, um, you know, we're, we're still learning so much about, you know, what it is that's going on with our own chemistry with the plant, even now uh, with access to all the wondrous technology that we have. It's still kind of funny that we're still so, like, still so new on the on the science side yep it makes it exciting but there's yeah there's a lot that's not known and and so what do you do when there's a lot that's not known um i think you you rely somewhat on the the long history of humans interacting with the plant in a in a natural form and you say all right if this plant had all kinds of bad stuff in it um we might have noticed that by now um it's really the 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 um the less natural forms that we have less history with. And maybe there's some of those less natural forms that are just awesome, but there's just, they're just much bigger unknowns. And that's why I think that, um, you know, when people say something is natural, it doesn't always mean it's good or that it's safe, but it typically, especially in a situation with cannabis that has been interacting with humans for millennia, you've at least got millennia of experience of collective human experience saying, you know, nobody's, nobody appears to have died from this or, grown an extra arm or anything and so there's there's some indicator it's at least a, a large body of anecdotal evidence that this seems to be pretty safe absolutely for sure um is there anything else you wanted to mention as far as uh, the work that you're doing with plant and planet and uh, breeders best i kind of wanted to kind of let you talk a little bit what more about either one of those if you want to kind of maybe touch on a little bit more of your own work that you're, you're doing uh in the space well, we all know that the cannabis industry has has um, really had a lot of setbacks, and it's had um, it's faced a lot of challenges. And I've certainly seen that with um, with the people that we work with, both at Plant and Planet and Breeders Best. And um, uh, I guess my my message is, and if this is something that I've I've really determined for myself in my in my own personal life, and I definitely want to share this with anybody who will listen that. Um, we believe in this enough that we remain committed to it. And there's, we know there's some tough sledding ahead and some heavy lifting and whatever other cliche you would use, but uh, this is important. It is going to change the world. And um, we want to be part of that. We've got to, we've got to find a way to, to keep pushing forward. And um, I, my hat is off to anybody who is still in there fighting and still trying to make it go. Um, and uh, I think we all need to be patient with each other and do our best, but uh, this is important work that that we're all doing in the industry, and we need to uh, we need to think of it as a community and an industry and a cause, and uh, that's certainly how I see it. Awesome. Is there any other legislation on the horizon that you think that um, people should also kind of keep their eye on right now that maybe we didn't touch on that 
you know, maybe you're aware of on your radar? You know, I find out about legislation mostly through things like INCBA and um, the, uh, um, uh, let's see, the cannabis business. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm forgetting the other acronym, but, um, the, you know, the Cannabis Industry Association uh, is good groups. Um, I'm not somebody who watches legislation all the time myself, so I don't have anything um, new to add, but, uh, you know, always happy to take some questions. Oh, I will say, if you've got that page up, we did just finish the first ever Global Intellectual Property Symposium on Cannabis, which is right there. We were in Montreal just last week um, uh, talking to each other in the daytime and um, walking all over the city at night and having a good time. So uh, I really enjoyed that symposium, but I'm also glad it's over. It was a lot, <laughs> it was a lot of work. So I, I co-chaired that symposium and and uh, am proud of my association with the International Cannabis Bar Association. Well, that's awesome, man. Uh, is there, um, they, they, well, I, we'll have to get you back on again sometime to talk about the international space. Uh, uh, I don't want to tie up your whole evening, but yeah, that would definitely be fun to, to have you back on sometime, especially with that being a very uh, active uh, space right now with a lot of things moving and changing. and. Um, that market really opening up uh, as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm a big uh, I I love um, uh, any excuse I've got to to go to Latin America. Especially I did I did spend some time in Ecuador a couple of years ago, um, cannabis related work, and I'm going to be uh, meeting with a bunch of attorneys in Mexico in December, I think, and so um, uh, and I'll be spending some time in Europe next year, hopefully to uh, meet some good cannabis people over there. So. Uh, I think uh, there's a bright future for this um, for this plant and for human health um, all around the world, and I'm, I'm excited to be part of it. We had one other question from chat. What is the legality of HHC, uh, and do you think that'll be a continued part of the market? Of HHC, can I? Can you? Let's yeah. see. It's I, it's like a Canada a cannabis analog kind of thing. Yeah, I, I can't comment on that. I haven't studied it. But um, uh, if you'd like to email me, I'll put my email in the chat here. And um, if you'd like to email me with any questions, I'd be happy to take a little bit of time to research them and see if I can get you some answers. It won't amount to legal advice unless you want to uh, work with us, but I can give you some general answers. So I'm happy to do that. Let's see, where did the chat go? Here we go. Did it? Yeah, let's send that. So there's my email address. And welcome anybody to get in touch with me with other questions. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll throw that in the in chat there. Great. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we uh, wrap up the show? No, just um, yeah, keep growing, keep smoking. Uh, let's. Uh, Let's enjoy this wonderful plant that we've that we've been blessed with. <laughs> awesome. And uh, for those of you that want to check him out more, uh, I will put his email in the description uh, as well as the uh, for the audio listeners. Um, you can check him out at plantandplanet.com as well as uh, breedersbest.com uh, for uh, the different resources he discussed there. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's good to see you again. Take care. Yeah. Nice to have you on.
Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Have a great evening. You too. Always fun to have Dale on. And uh, it was really interesting to kind of learn a lot about the plant protections as well as uh, the Schedule 3 stuff and the great resource that he mentioned earlier. Uh, I will throw that back up on the screen again if you're catching this here at the end. Uh, it was the, the INCBA uh, on um, YouTube. Uh, they have a really long two hour breakdown on Schedule 3 changes. Uh, so if you want really a long format, uh, we'll check that out. And uh, yeah, uh, if you ever have any, you know, patent stuff, questions on, on cannabis or protections for your other plants and things, uh, he's a great guy to know. Uh, again, formerly, uh, previously part of a Open Cannabis Project a long time ago. Uh, you can check out the episodes he was on as well. We had herbarium specialists and um, all kinds of other interesting people on uh, during those uh, those times. Many, many moons ago, I uh, was that back in 2018 and 2019. It was quite an interesting time uh, before the virus hit. So really interesting times. And again, be sure to check out your farm bill changes, especially if it's something that affects you. Um, it, it, you know, we don't really know what they're going to do yet, but it could cause a lot of havoc for a lot of people. Uh, share this here. If you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis, please consider the Aquaponic Cannabis Masterclass at apmjclass.com, featuring over seven days of in-depth, hands-on educational content with Marty Waddell and Stephen Reisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe. We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of and uh, and so much more so be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com and if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses please check out uh, thepestclass.com where we have a huge in-depth course on pest control how to make your own um, bio controls as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you might encounter in your aquaponics garden. And it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis. Uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well. So be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in your education. All right. Um, also, be sure to go check out the episode I just did last week with Jordan River over at Growcast. We talked about IPMO, talked about Thai genetics, talked about a bunch of cool stuff. Also, if you're in the U.S., uh, later this month, we'll be doing our first seed drop of the Thai, uh, Thai genetics. So be sure to stay tuned for that. We'll have more information in the future on how to get your hands on some of those. Uh, stay tuned. And, uh, yeah, those will be uh, available here at the end of the month. Uh, we'll bring up more information on how to go about finding those uh, shortly. So be sure to check that out. And, uh, yeah, uh, next week is next week we might have a recorded episode i have a couple of people that we need to get on that can't do thursdays um so and i have a little bit of a weirder schedule uh on next thursday so uh, we'll probably have that and then move back to normal ones i hope you guys uh are enjoying the uh the return of kind of the normal normal schedule i have uh 
my office kind of set back up here and a little more settled again. So um, getting everything back into order, trying to get recorded content out to you guys on Tuesdays and the live content out to you on Thursdays with a Dat Smoke Show on Wednesdays where we kind of have more of a relaxed thing over on the other channel. Uh, so, uh, yeah, thanks, everybody, for being supportive. Uh, it's been kind of a wild couple months with family stuff and everything else. Things are kind of getting more back to normal. So uh, thanks, everybody, and uh, we'll catch you guys again next week. Cheers, and a big shout-out to Dale for coming on today and uh, helping us better understand a lot of these more complicated topics. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Take it easy. Peace.